and I will now introduce tonight's panel to discuss the role of the Foreign Secretary in the UK. We have two very distinguished speakers, Jack Straw, who was Foreign Secretary in Tony Blair's Labour government from 2001 to 2006, and has retained a lively interest in foreign affairs ever since, and Sir David Manning, a career diplomat in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the FCO, who was Tony Blair's foreign policy advisor in 2001, shortly after Jack became foreign secretary, and then was British ambassador to Washington from 2003 to 2007. We're going to have a discussion between the three of us for 40 to 45 minutes before we open it up to Q&A. Abby Turner is going to collate and collect your questions. If you want to ask your question direct, we'll ask you to unmute. But if you want Abby to put your question for you, that is fine. Please be understanding if your question is not selected, we may not be able to answer them all. The seminar will end at around 7.15, or if the questions are still going strong at the latest by 7.30. So let me turn to Jack and ask him about his first impressions of the Foreign Office. Jack, I remember from reading your memoirs that you expected or hoped to go after the Home Office to jo jo John Prescott's department, DETR. So it must have been a bit of a shock when Tony asked you to be Foreign Secretary. How long did it take to recover from that and to begin to set some initial priorities? Um, well, it, it, yeah, I was uh, I was very surprised because even the, uh, I was I was totally pleased, but even the day before, uh, when I uh, I'd been, been talking to John Prescott and he'd been in turn uh, as had I had been to, uh, spoken to Tony, had expected me to take over his portfolio. But anyway, um, and I had I had no uh, background in uh, foreign policy. I'd not I'd, I'd done a lot on working with the EU on the Justice and Home Affairs uh, Council as Home Secretary, but and there uh, been some bilateral things with uh, India, uh, Pakistan, and with uh, the United States, but I hadn't uh, done very much active diplomacy, nor had I shadowed it in opposition. So I was surprised, but also I was jolly pleased. Um, so anyway, so I, off, off I went. Um, it's, a, it's a very short uh, walk from uh, one side of Downing Street to the other. Uh, to get to the Foreign Office. Um, the, uh, so just uh, winding forward, I mean, the, uh, the, the first thing I, I, I noticed was um, that the, the sort of quantum mass of people, uh, of, of officials in the Foreign Office were overall much brighter than in the Home Office. It's not a criticism of the Home Office, but it's a big operational department. There were some very bright people in there. Um, but um, the Foreign Office obviously has operational stuff, but it was a lot to do with policy and relations with other countries and so on. So that was one. And also by a pure fluke, um, two close uh, personal friends, one of whom is on this panel, David Manning, I know we uh, met in Lackabad in uh, Delhi uh, on Christmas Day in 1978, David, if you remember, when my wife and I were on our honeymoon. Uh, and through a mutual friend, um, uh, friends, uh, uh, Michael and Sylvia J. And uh, anyway, David, just a, shortly after uh, my appointment, was brought back by Tony uh, Blair to become his um, diplomatic advisor. 
and Michael uh, had been uh, was already ambassador in Paris, and subsequently came back within a few months to be the permanent secretary of the uh, department. So I was really lucky in that respect. Um, the, it was a very. Uh, my wife um, was really concerned when uh, she she got the news um, uh, that. I would be even busier than I had been in the Home Office because I'd been ridiculously busy in the Home Office because it's about 80% bigger than the current Home Office is today because it had lots of other things, most of which got transferred uh, to justice. So I, I was very concerned about that, but it as it happens, the period in, from June until September the 10th, 2001, was, was pretty quiet. So my boxes were lighter and that meant I was more time to read myself in. And I thought, well, crap, how do I do this job? So I got in um, somebody I was personally friendly with, former foreign secretary and also former diplomat, Douglas Hurd. Uh, and he brought it across to see me. And I said to him, look, Douglas, I've not done this job before. Um, I need a, I need a, a, a book list from you. I mean, I, they talked to me about how you did the job, but I said, I need a book list. So he, then, um, he served up 10 books um, very quickly. And, to my great delight, I'd read nine of them already because I, I always have an interest in international relations as a, and in, in uh, history. Um, and the one I hadn't read was Kissinger on Diplomacy. Um, so I quickly got that and read it. And uh, what I discovered was that it was a very good read uh, about the uh, uh, Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, but actually tailed off when it, in, in the 20th century. So anyway. Okay, well, I'll give this job a go. Um, and and uh, there you go. Um, and you mentioned it was quiet until the 10th of September. And we know what happened on the next day, 9-11. Uh, tell us about that. And uh, then in a moment, David, I'll come to you, because I imagine by then you were in number 10. And I'd like you to tell us about the response to 9-11 from number 10. But Jack, go first. Um, the, the only problem uh, that I had in this quiet time uh, was, in a sense, it was too quiet. And, and because there was so much on uh, on the domestic front, um, in complete contrast to the Home Office, in the Home Office, I had no problem at all with getting coverage. In fact, I spent my time setting my staff, keeping me out of the papers. Um, so, uh, because, you know, there's one thing coming in after another. Um, in, in the Foreign Office, in this quite per quiet period, um, it was quite difficult to get any kind of traction. So we arranged that I would make a speech uh, to the um, British Council in Manchester, a big speech about foreign policy. Anyway, and so off I, we all trotted and I gave this speech. It wasn't a bad speech, um, but it put some other things on domestically. Uh, so I opened the papers on September the 11th, uh, there were just a few lines. And then uh, that afternoon, UK time, I was having a meeting with the Chief of Defence Staff and then Defence Secretary Jeff Hume about troop deployments uh, in the Balkans. This is about you know, two or three hundred extra uh, here, here or there. And then my then private secretary, one of the private secretaries, Mark Sedwell, subsequently um, became cabinet secretary and, and uh, is now being put in the Lords by uh, Boris Johnson. He came in and said, I think you should turn television off. Um, and then we watched what was happening. Um, David's story is much more dramatic than mine. So, David, tell us about 9-11 as seen from number 10. 
Well, to back up a little bit, Robert, like Jack, I was surprised to find myself where I was because I had gone to be ambassador to NATO at the beginning of the year, 2001, um, and only came back to London after Tony Blair decided to reorganize Downing Street after his election victory in June. Uh, and I got back to London in July in time for a summit which Tony Blair had, and I think Jack had with Colin Powell at the time in Chequers, a sort of get to know you summit, um, because famously Bill Clinton is said to have said to Tony Blair, you know, please get to know uh, George W. very well, because he's going to need an experienced friend. And this was a, an opportunity to try and the two teams to meet, if you like. Anyway, by September, I had met Condi Rice, who technically was my contact in Washington, but I have to be very careful here. She was vastly uh, senior. She's a she was a cabinet member in her own right, so she had ministerial responsibility. And I was an official, but nevertheless, the one of one of the things Tony Blair wanted to do in reorganizing Number Ten was to make sure there was more of a, a networked arrangement between Number Ten and and the White House, and indeed. Um, the Elysee and the Auswärtiges Amt, because heads of government and heads of state tend to like to, to talk uh, among themselves, irritating though that can be for foreign officers. Anyway, I, I, I came back uh, in, in July for the same summit that Jack was at, at, at um, Chequers, and agreed with Condi Rice that I would go over for a proper uh, get-to-know-you working session in September to see her after the, the vacation and, and to establish a sort of working rapport. So I found myself in, in Washington and had a day of talks with her and I was going to fly back on the night of the, uh, of the 10. But we decided to stay on work over dinner on, on some issues. Um, and the following morning, I was flying up to take the shuttle to New York to link up with a United Airlines flight to, to London. Um, but we were delayed and I sat in the airport in uh, Washington waiting to get the shuttle up. It should have gone at seven o'clock. By the time the delay had worked itself through, I arrived over Manhattan at about five minutes to nine. And I was in this small com commuter plane uh, and I looked out of the window and saw this pillar of smoke. And then once we landed, I was told by the ground staff that there'd been what they thought was an accident. But literally as we were waiting in the lounge, the other plane went in, and it was by this time on live TV. And so I found myself actually in, in, in New York on 9-11, um, but completely cut off. Uh, and it took me, I, it was only on the morning, the following morning, when Jeremy Greenstock, who was our ambassador at the UN, uh, managed to make contact, um, that I then worked my way down to, to Washington. Um, where there was a meeting of the intelligent, heads of the intelligence agencies, both of the UK and the US. And what was very striking was that they, they had already worked out by, by, that, uh, by, that, by that evening that it was Osama bin Laden who had done this. Uh, you know, and, and from there, we, I, I, got, I worked my way back on, on, with them on their flight the following day and got back to London two days after 9-11 took place. Gosh, I, I had no idea that you were a live witness tonight. Well, live witness in the sense that I was in New York, certainly. Yes. I'm in the sky. I saw the planes go in, 
but I was there and I did see it happening around me, yeah. Yes. Well, um, I mean, that must have been both a high in terms of an intense adrenaline moment um, and a low in the sense of real sickening pit at the bottom of your stomach. Um, but Jack, tell us a, a bit more about the highs and lows in, in more ordinary times. What was most enjoyable about being Foreign Secretary? Um, and what was drudgery or worse? I mean, all jobs, even grand jobs, have, yeah. have their elements of dross. Well, um, I mean, the, the, high, the, the sort of the highs were, um, I mean, the, the, the highs, if you like, at a, at a, at a level of performance. Um, so of, of doing well and, um, uh, so in in the uh, for, for the spring of two thousand and three, in the run up to the uh, well, in the run up to the Iraq military action, there were some extremely well publicised and high profile um, ministerial meetings in the Security Council, um, where uh, you frankly couldn't drop the ball. Uh, I mean, in, and um, anyway, um, thankfully I didn't. And, and one, of, I mean, it was. One of the, the the last speech at the last meeting I made um, was, I say, without any modesty, the, one of the best I made. I mean, it might have been you know, a big mistake. But anyway, uh, it was. But before that, um, I mean, I th a thing I, that gives me immense pleasure, and I know it does David, because we worked on this very closely together, was managing to get a unanimous agreement for what became Security Council Resolution fourteen forty one, because. It had taken uh, an immense effort by people like David, by, by me, by Tony Blair, to persuade the Americans that if they wanted to take any action against Saddam, it had to be through the UN. And, and that was the agenda in the summer of 2002. Um, and George W. Bush agreed to do that, um, announced that uh, to um, the uh, UN uh, General Assembly in September. And then Condi Rice, David, uh, Colin Powell, me, and Jeremy Greenstock, and his opposite number uh, in uh, the UN, worked on this resolution. I mean, normally they're handled uh, practically at a slightly lower level, but <laughs> um, I, I don't know about you, David, I can still, still recite parts of the resolution. Um, and, and then well, we. Uh, I think, Jack, you're being a bit modest, actually, um, because this was a very difficult resolution to negotiate because of the pressures in Washington. There were a lot of people in Washington who wanted this resolution to fail yep. because they did not want George W. to go back to the UN. And if he decided to do that, which he did to their dismay, what they then wanted to do was make sure that whatever resolution went to the Security Council was so extreme that it would never be passed. And this meant some very, very delicate footwork and some very persuasive negotiation. And I don't just say it because I know you and I was there. I mean, the fact is Jack led that. And I think without the intervention that you managed to, to, uh, to make, we would not have got 1441. And it was a tremendous success. The tragedy was that Saddam Hussein was too stupid to use it. Had he implemented the, the provisions of it, the Americans would have had to act differently and indeed said so at the time. Uh, and I can remember when the Prime Minister said to the President, you will have to take yes for an answer. He said, yes, I know. So there was a lot at stake. And in fact, I think that that, that negotiation, which 
and it took hours of most days of your life for about four weeks, I think, was a, a rather extraordinary event. No, it was extraordinary. And uh, I mean, but you worked on it with Condi. Um, I, I did with Colin Powell and forged a, well, it had started earlier that, that summer, but it, a, 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 a close and enduring fr friendship uh, with, with Colin Powell, um, which um, that still goes on. And he, he, he um, got me, uh, tagged by my wife uh, as uh, the other man in her life uh, because <laughs> he's, he's, well I have actually a very close relationship I, I, I leave the room um, but um, he, he used to phone um, I mean with great regularity at about 11 o'clock in the evening which was fine for him because it was six o'clock uh, in uh, in Washington uh, and he then asked me to, 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 to phone on, on a secure phone um, and so, so uh, I phoned him on this because he didn't want to, didn't want to go through state ops because he was worried about who was listening, even though it was secure uh, overall. So anyway, then I'd call him uh, and I'd be on the phone for about an hour uh, in my study and then I'd have to write it up. Um, and so this uh, cold and, and slightly revved up, I get to bed about half past midnight. Um, but, uh, my wife Alice is pretty tolerant about this, but this went on, particularly at this time, the sort of daily, I mean, as well as, as, well as during, during the day. But, only, but anyway, as David said, that, the, the trap, that it was a really good resolution. Um, uh, and the tragedy was that, um, and we got, we got all, all, the, all the members of the Security Council, including Syria for Pete's sake, Assad Syria signed up to this, um, saying that uh, Iraq posed a threat to international peace and security and giving him a, a, a rope ladder to come down without any humiliation. But as, as David said, he, he, he was too stupid to, to realise when he was being offered a gift. Jack, just as a tiny bit of process, when you talked to Colin Powell on the secure line, was there no private secretary listening in and taking a note? If it was in the office, there was a, a private secretary. Um, but if it was in you know, 11 o'clock out in, in the UK, no, there wasn't. Um, and that made for a, more, a franker discussion. Um, it, it also meant I had to write it up long. You had to write the note. I yes. was away at the time. And I'd write the notes up and David would, would remember. And then, um, you know, I, 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 you couldn't use email, obviously, for these things. Um, I take them into the office the next day and then they get typed up and sent round to a limited number of people. Yeah. And then uh, the invasion happened, the Allied invasion of Iraq. Um, and gradually, perhaps quite quickly, um, things began to turn slightly sour in terms of the occupation of Iraq and the installation of a new government, etc. And how quickly uh, did each of you begin to develop concerns about what was happening after the invasion? Jack first, and then David. Well, I think the, I mean, you know, all of us went into this with a very heavy heart. Um, I mean, but we're, we're convinced, as it were, that there was no better alternative, because um, war is horrible. Um, I think I, I, first realized there was something really serious up was in April. Um, so the invasion began on March the 19th, 20th, David? Yeah, yeah. 17th, 18th, I think. Uh, so we had the debate in the House of Commons and the debate on the, on the 18th and then 
Yeah, so it started a day or so after that. Um, and I went to, amongst other places, to Kuwait, bang next to Iraq, um, to talk to our people. And, and they, the hot war was still going on in, in uh, early April. We talked to our people, including quite a lot, a lot of our military personnel. And the, we'd had a lot of discussions, David had been heavily involved in this, with the Americans about um, what we would do uh, to put in a government when uh, and if Saddam was removed. And Colin Powell, who, who I thought had been the commander on the ground of coalition forces um, back in uh, 1991, had been active in persuading, no, sorry, his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, senior officer, he'd been active in persuading uh, George W. Bush's father, um, uh, George W. H. Bush, not to remove Saddam on the grounds that um, the, that war had limited aims uh, and it was not in the interest of the United States or any of the other allies to end up running Iraq. Um, and Colin had, had been making that point internally in the run-up to the decisions back in early and mid-2002. But anyway, he accepted that the, the circumstances were different. And he, he assured me, I'm sure he sure, I'm sure, sure, sure David, uh, and, and our officials, that the State Department was in the lead on governance of the country post um, an invasion and, and the removal of Saddam. Any, and they were going to set up a, 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 an outfit called Orha, the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance. And but a, a, a three-star general called Jay Garner was appointed to this. And Powell had warned me that this was you thought really odd that somebody not serious seniority had been put in. I went to the putative headquarters of Orha, which was a ballroom in a hotel in Kuwait. And I was utterly appalled because apart from anything else, they had very few Arabic speakers there. And they frankly didn't know what they were doing. Anyway, I mean, I'm, 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 what had happened was that, and I sort of, I think we all got wind of this, but there'd been a turf war in Washington and Rumsfeld and Cheney had won for the uh, Department of Defense and the Department of Rumsfeld had persuaded Bush that not only did our military have to be in the uh, tactical lead day to day, as long as there was a military threat on the ground, which everybody understands, but that the overall organization of this reconstruction uh, and provisional authority agency should also be in the hands of the Department of Defense, who had no experience of doing this. Um, and all this preparation in the State Department was just ignored. And Rumsfeld effectively was saying, we'll do it. Um, and it, it was a, a catastrophe. And then quite quickly after that, um, Jay Garner was taken back and um, Orhan was subsumed into an outfit called the Coalition Provisional Authority, which did have a much more senior guy called uh, Paul Bremer in charge. But um, then, I mean, the, the, the biggest um, problem was that he was taking his orders directly from the Department of Defense, and I think from Dick Cheney. Um, and on one critical issue about which Condi uh, writes very critically in her memoirs, which was the debathification 
of the armed forces uh, in Iraq. Uh, he decided, uh, without consultation with us, nor indeed uh, with Condi Rice, uh, according to her memoirs, nor certainly with Colin Powell, but certainly with um, Rumsfeld and Cheney, that um, anybody who'd served in the Iraq uh, armed forces uh, would lose their rank uh, and lose their, their pay. But you know, one thing they weren't going to lose was their weapons. So it's complete catastrophe, which could easily have been, been avoided in my view. I don't know whether that's your view, David. Yeah, I, I, my worries about um, what was going to happen on the ground, I have to confess, precede the invasion. I, I suppose slightly as a, uh, an amateur as armchair general, I was very worried in the run up to the um, invasion that we would find that the Allied forces were trapped in a sort of Stalingrad situation in Baghdad and would be hand to hand fighting. And I was also very worried that um, we were insufficiently prepared to fight in a biological and chemical warfare environment. Um, and when it became increasingly likely that uh, the, the Americans were going to uh, dispense with the inspections and, 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 and the invasion was going to go ahead. Uh, I asked the Prime Minister to go and talk to the Chiefs of Staff again. There was a briefing about this and I was told that my concerns were certainly misplaced and the Chiefs were right, they were misplaced. Uh, and in fact, um, the early invasion was remarkably successful. I mean, within six weeks, as I recall, you know, the invasion was done. There, were, there was no chemical and biological environment. And there was no street fighting in, in Baghdad with, with heavy casualties and deaths of civilians. And at that point, I felt more optimistic about this. I thought, well, perhaps this is going to go you know, much better than I feared it was going to go. And I think for me, the... the, the it may not have been the first thing, but the day I remember having real misgivings was when I heard that um, there had been looting in Baghdad and that the American forces in Baghdad, who were the occupying power in Baghdad, had not intervened. And it seemed to me that at that point we were risking the liberators becoming the occupiers, which is always a tremendous mistake. And certainly the Prime Minister was very worried about that and was instructing me to talk to uh, Condi Rice and he spoke, he spoke to, to uh, the President. And I'm sure Jack talked to, to Colin about it. And the difficult thing was that it was perfectly clear that both in the White House and in you know, the West Wing of the White House, if you like, where Condi Rice sat, they were extremely perturbed about this. But that somehow or other, there was a disconnect between what the White House and the National Security Advisor Stroke Council wanted to happen on the ground and what was happening on the ground. And this, I think, plagued the early weeks and, and months of this, um, the, the, you know, the Americans being on the ground. Um, it was very, very difficult to get anybody to focus on what seemed to be the key issues like electricity generation and the reconnection of water uh, and, as, as Jack said, OHA, this, this, the initial organization, um, was, I can only say it was full of good intentions. And Jay Garner at least was an Arabist in the sense that he had worked in Kurdistan. He did know the area. Yes, he did. And you know, when Bremer comes along, Bremer has never worked in the area at all. 
but they were hopelessly underpowered. And I was asked by the prime minister to go out and see what was going on on the ground. So in May, I went out and looked, and I must say, I was deeply disturbed by what I saw, not least because when you were on the streets, the American military, who had been there a long time, and in fairness, you know, they were tired, but they looked still as though they were about to fight a war. They were in battle dress, they were driving around in hard, hard top vehicles, tanks, and so on. And they didn't look like the friendly liberator. They looked much more like the occupier. But of course, Rumsfeld had promised them they were all going home. And one of the difficulties over this summer is that, for the reasons Jack's given, the uh, the former, you know, the, the, the military in, in, um, in, in Iraq, the, the troops are suddenly thrown out on their ear with no, nothing except their weapons to, to uh, sustain them. So inevitably, inevitably start uh, forming militias. At the same time, Bremer has also, um, uh, as it were, anathematized anybody who belonged to the Ba'ath Party. So you have these two things happening at once. And overnight, you have all the former Iraqi soldiery, who had very little option uh, except to do what Saddam had told them, plus the members of the Ba'ath Party, turned into opponents. And in a very short time, any goodwill, especially since it's boiling hot, the, the electricity isn't working, apparently the water isn't being reconnected, and you have this sense of alienation building up. Very, very quickly in the summer, it became clear that we were in, you know, very serious trouble with this operation. And it got worse because although the Prime Minister persuaded um, President Bush that we must get the UN back in, of course, as soon as they did come back in, Sergio de Mello was murdered. And so, although it had been our position, as Jack has described, to insist that the UN is involved right up to the invasion itself, and I would have argued it should have been sustained then. We then tried to get them back in as soon as the invasion's taking place. By the summer, there is no UN presence. And what we have is Bremer is in almost um, a sort of uh, uh, vice-regal role, frankly. And the man Sergio, who you said was murdered, was the UN envoy to Iraq. Yes, and a wonderful figure who um, was a brave figure, had tremendous reputation. And at least if the UN had come in, there would have been, it would have been quite clear that the international community could have rallied round uh, the UN. It was much, much harder for the UN community to decide they were going to rally round Bremer, frankly. Yes. That was in the uh, 19th of August, and it, I think 100 of the UN staff were killed. Uh, and as David said, I mean, the, the, the place was just wiped out and it took yes. a long time then to go back. Now, we could talk about Iraq for a lot longer, um, but there are other things, um, if we may, I'd like to move on to. So one of the things, Jack, I wanted to ask you was about the capacity for a foreign secretary to create his own foreign policy. Uh, I mean, your predecessor, Robin Cook, uh, famously uh, tried to craft what became known as an ethical foreign policy. Um, what were your own personal priorities or your own personal stamp? And, and how much of a stamp do you think um, an individual foreign secretary can put uh, on the role and on the policy? Um, I mean, first of all, on, on the ethical foreign policy, I, I 
let mention of that quietly slip, not because I wanted to follow an unethical foreign policy um, or an amoral foreign policy, but, but I mean, frankly, it's, it's just, a, you know, I, I just thought it got in the way um, because there are some really, really difficult choices in international diplomacy. Um, that the, 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 the choices are not always between good and bad, they're between less bad or really bad. Uh, and you've got to make a choice uh, in those situations. So um, I, I wasn't, um, say, enamored of that. I mean, on, on um, and I was finding my feet on the first uh, two or three months and then we had 9-11. So the, the overall agenda um, was, to a degree, was set, although, um, and we had a lot to do in the, in, in, in the EU, excuse me. And David and I worked on this a lot. The, the issue that was bubbling up in uh, the first six months of 2002, uh, this is after 9-11, but before uh, talk, uh, the active talk of war, was not Iraq. It was um, the possibility of a major confrontation, I mean, a really serious one, uh, across the line of control between India and Pakistan. Um, and um, I mean, so I'm just picking that up. I did um, say, so right, and I quite often asked, you know, what, what scope have you got? Well, the first thing to, to say is, I mean, look, if you're a member of a government and it's applied to, to me being Home Secretary, you accept uh, that you, there's a boss, who here is called Prime Minister, in the US system it's called the President, um, and there's a cabinet, and if you don't like that, don't join. Um, uh, and in, but as far as the Home Office is concerned, um, there, was, there were no real areas of, of tension um, between uh, Tony uh, and me. Um, he'd done the job before, he put me in there when he became leader. Um, we agreed on uh, most things. I mean, uh, the issue, uh, if you like, is an issue uh, that frustrated him was the fact that we weren't uh, getting the number of uh, number of burglaries down and stuff like that. But I mean, anyway, um, we did in the end. So this, but foreign policy, the, the canvas is, is different, and you are to some extent uh, driven by events, but you try and mould them. So far as India and Pakistan is concerned, and so David is also involved in that, we were bringing me together. I happen to know quite a lot about the India-Pakistan conflict. One of the things I did know about, I mean, because in my constituency, um, about half the, the Asian population were from India, half from Pakistan, and they're all Muslims. Uh, they've got very different views about the, the or many of them have, uh, uh, about the Kashmir issue. So I, I, I'd learned to sort of tread on hot coals over that issue, uh, which turned out to be rather rather important. Um, I mean, on on other stuff, the the um, I mean, on some on some stuff. I mean, if we take Iraq, um, yeah, I, I I can't answer the question. What would I have done if I'd been in Tony Blair's shoes, but facing George W. Bush in that situation? Probably the same as he did, but maybe different. Um, but you know. I still had a, a good deal of discretion, could make a difference, uh, as David and I did over 1441, a very considerable difference. Um, so, and, and then to move on to another area, which is I Iran, um, the, 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 what, we, what, start, what started the current, the, the, the joint the JCPOA uh, was an agreement actually post rounds over, over Iraq between uh, Joska Fischer, German Foreign Minister, Dominic de Villepin, and me. Uh, who was Just decode for the audience, JCPOA. Oh, the JCPOA. 
a joint comprehensive plan of action, uh, which you. is the, the deal uh, with, um, it was the US, uh, UK, Germany, France, China, and Russia endorsed by the Security Council over Iran's nuclear op, uh, program. And that was ultimately started, these negotiations started in 2003. Bits and starts. We came very close uh, with Connie Rice's hog. Uh, to getting an agreement in 2005-06, but we didn't. Uh, and then it was restarted um, actually two years before Obama got in. Uh, it was through secret talks, and then Obama and John Kerry took it off, and it was signed off in the uh, summer of 2015 and started in 2016. Uh, and Trump, whipped up by Netanyahu, uh, campaigned against it. Pull, pull the uh, Americans out of it, uh, scores a lot of trouble in Iraq, helped the hardliners who were always opposed to it, um, uh, has uh, greatly uh, hit living standards in Iraq, um, and, it's, it, and it's just it's played into the hands of, of the kind of militarists in, in Iran um, and produced quite the opposite uh, effect that he wanted. But anyway, so, but that I, I mean, I, I'm really proud of, of, of what I was able to do there. And of course, you know, I kept, uh, this was, had to be with the agreement of, of, of Tony Blair, but um, basically um, uh, left me to it. And there was quite, a, there was a good reason for it in a way, because it might've gone, gone wrong. The Americans were not keen on it at the beginning, particularly uh, Powell was, but the others, Rossville thought it was a terrible idea to talk to the Iranians like this. Um, uh, and it, it meant that, uh, I mean, Tony had millions of other things to do, and I think he trusted me by this stage, uh, that uh, if it did all go wrong, it wasn't, it, the trail wasn't going to lead to his door. And David, from the foreign secretaries that you observed during your uh, long career as a diplomat, how much scope would you say there is for the foreign secretary to develop his own policy? Well, I think there's a difference between developing the policy and, if you like, having a, a tabula rasa and saying, I'm going to have this foreign policy. But I'm sure that foreign, foreign secretaries can develop policy. They need to have the trust of the prime minister. Um, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, some, some foreign ministries talk about their foreign secretary or foreign ministers being their chief diplomat. I think this is a rather helpful idea because if you have uh, uh, the leader of, if, if your foreign secretary is effective internationally talking to his counterparts, then you, you certainly multiply your, the impact you can have. Yeah. If you're liked by your colleagues, if they're pleased to see you at the table, if you're sitting down worrying about the Balkans or the Middle East or whatever it may be, and they see you as somebody who's going to have good ideas and be helpful, you can certainly shape the debate, yeah. have an impact. And so I think as long as one isn't saying, you know, you're, you're suggesting that a British foreign secretary can somehow invent a policy, I think that's very difficult to do. But given the world as he or she finds it, I think their skills, their diplomatic skills, their ability to get on and to, and that their interest in ideas makes a big difference. Um, and I think that period when Jack was foreign secretary covers as he said, India, Pakistan was certainly the, the most pressing issue in the first six months of 2002. It certainly wasn't Iran. Um, it was Afghanistan as well. It was also the fact that there was a tremendous crisis in the Middle East 
um, over the, uh, the possibility that the Israelis were going to take out uh, Yasser Arafat, who was holed up for a period in, in, um, in, in Ramallah. So, you know, this is a very broad range of issues. But if you have a foreign secretary who's um, liked and respected within his own system and with his, his counterparts, then you can have a real impact on, on policy, I think. Um, but you've got to work at it. We can't do it because we can throw our weight around. You have to do it because we're effective, because we're trusted, because we do have good ideas. Uh, and I think at this period, that was certainly the role that, um, you know, Blair and Straw had, frankly. I mean, I just like to just, as, as one footnote to what Jack was saying about um, ethical foreign policy, I mean, I agree with him, you know, choices are so often uh, bad or worse. Um, but I do think it's important that Britain has a values-based foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we always have done that. And it, it's partly because we believe in it. It's partly because it's in our own interest. We are, you know, a medium-sized power and we need an international system that is values-based so we know how to operate in it and get the most out of it, whether it's the rule of law or whatever it may be. But... Uh, it was hugely important, if you, if you think back to the fall of the Soviet Union, the sucker that Britain and partners gave to dissidents inside the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, which is where, I mean, I suppose I cut my diplomatic teeth. I spent a lot of my early career in Eastern Europe. Um, it was very important. It was hugely valued. And actually, it's something the country could be very proud of. So I'm, I'm, I, I absolutely agree that as it were, wandering around shouting, I got an ethical foreign policy may not, not be the best way of doing this. But to have a values-based foreign policy, I think is very important. Now we'll come in 10 minutes or so to Q&A from the audience. Uh, and I'd encourage uh, members of the audience to put your questions through the Q&A function to Abby. Um, and I want to move on. Uh, to a brief discussion about the present and also uh, the future. But just before we leave um, your time in office, Jack, um, what regrets do you have? Um, what do you wish that you had done differently? Well, um, I mean, it was, it was, hindsight's brilliant, um, uh, but you, have, you, you haven't got the benefit of hindsight. I mean, the thing which I could have changed, I think I, I, I could have changed, say, you know, plenty of things you're sorry that happened, but those, yeah, you, you couldn't actually change. Um, but I have a particular regret, which is really uh, grated with me ever since, was over Cyprus. Um, there was, the, the Greek Cypriots wanted to come into the European Union. The, the country had been split since the Turkish invasion and occupation in 1974. Um, and there was a long, long UN process to try and get them back together again. And, and you, you could argue forever about who it was that cast the first stone, which led to the breakdown of the 1960 independence constitution, which was a, 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 about power sharing with the big minority, big, well, basically majority of Greek Cypriots and the rather worried minority of, of Turkish Cypriots. But anyway, um, that had broken down and there was a, a lot of negotiations brokered by the UN Secretary General uh, with a special representative to put them back together again. Um, and these came to a head in the negotiation which um, the, the then uh, Kofi Annan um, brokered uh, 
at a place called Bergenstock um, in, in Switzerland, I think it is, um, between the, the, the two sides and, and the, uh, the other key parties, including us, uh, because we're, uh, we have a, a key role in, 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 uh, in, in Iraq under international treaty. And both the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriot representatives signed up to this deal and agreed that they, they would put it to their peoples in a referendum. The, um, and that, that's what the Turks did. It was passed in a referendum. Uh, the uh, Greek Cypriot president, a guy called Papadopoulos, um, who I never appreciated, to put it mildly, um, ratted on this and campaigned against that. Um, and um, it, 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 I mean, he signed it, the damn thing, but he, he, anyway. Um, and he got a majority against it. And the uh, EU foreign ministers were really angry about this. Uh, what I should have done is built on this and said, because we had a right to do that we would veto um, Cyprus's pending accession to the EU, um, which was for May 2004. Um, but, you know, there were other things on and I thought about it and uh, there, would have been a, there would have been a big issue about the security of our military bases as well. So I'm, I'm not suggesting this was an easy decision, but I, I, wish, I, I wish I really had it tried uh, because so much as what's happened since then, including these days, huge rumpus in the Eastern Mediterranean over uh, where the, the maritime borders of the, of the EU recognized state and the uh, Turkish satellite state actually are. Uh, and much else besides could have been resolved. Anyway, that's 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 um, one of them. But uh, thank you. Now um, we must let the audience in shortly. Um, but before we go to Q and A, I have a couple of quick questions um, about the present. Um, the first is about the merger of DFID, the Department for International Development, with the Foreign Office six months ago uh, last summer. Uh, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? David, would you like to go first on this one? Well, I suspect I shall be in the minority here, but I'm perfectly relaxed about it. I've thought for a long time there's a lot to be said for having one Secretary of State who has a view across the whole piece and the resources to put behind it. Uh, and that there is no reason why you can't have an effective aid programme run under the auspices of the Foreign Secretary. You probably need a, sec uh, a Minister of State um, working to him whose sole job is to think through the implications of what you do with your development program. But I think coordinating the aid program better with the, the politics is a very good idea. My reservation at the moment is not that. My concern is the decision to go back from the 0.7% commitment. I think that's likely to be far more important in uh, how we are seen and how we de develop it. Uh, our aid programme than whether or not we have rearranged the, uh, the, the furniture in Whitehall. Jack, what's, okay, that's what's your view? view. I, I actually I agree with David completely uh, and it's also long been my view, it's not a bit, um, and there were, there were really quite serious problems, especially in Africa, about coordination with DFID and, and uh, DFID, I mean, you know, they've done a lot of their aid programmes brilliantly, although as we now see, um, because there wasn't the, the effective scrutiny of that department, uh, they, 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 their, their inadequate stewardship of aid programs has undermined the reputation of, of, of a lot of aid programs, and that's not a good thing. Um, and they, 
they were they were off by themselves and, and in, in one of it, or some African countries they were almost got to the point of pursuing a kind of foreign policy of their own um, which certainly caused us but also in number 10 as well and I like David I say this the um, people abroad, what they're interested in is the coherence of what we're doing and also how the money is spent and how much money there is. Uh, they're not interested in what they would see as a slightly arcane issue of machinery of government. But I think, I mean, it's, it's something we, sh we should have done uh, a long time ago. And then a final question for me. Um, the government uh, is said to be uh, instigating an integrated review of foreign policy, defense, security, and international development, um, which sounds a very, very big review. Do you think that's uh, necessary to involve all those departments, or is it too ambitious and too comprehensive to do such a big review? Jack and, and then David. Well, uh, David's the kind of guy who would have ended up leading this. Um, uh, and uh, I would you know, just be sitting there waiting to see the result. I think it's, you know, I, I don't have serious criticism about the idea that, that these far four uh, sectors uh, of Britain's to do with our, our security and overseas activity and representation uh, should uh, speak closely to each other and, and should try to you know, work out what, what the common threats are and how they respond to them. Um, I don't think you should necessarily hold your breath for the results, um, because that, there's already a, a defence and security review as well. Um, but you know, foreign policy is heavily tied in to um, defence and security policy all the time, and aid ought to be part of that as well. David, you will have been part of many strategic reviews. What are Manning's laws? Well, I suppose they have a, they, people grow weary of them because you know we have review after review and. I suspect very often that the critics would say, that, you know, at the end of a, a long process, all you produce is a mouse and it's very quickly forgotten anyway. I mean, I actually think a review is very necessary. Um, this is an extraordinary moment in, 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 in terms of where Britain finds itself internationally. Uh, the, the two great post-war pillars of our foreign policy, the EU and the relationship with the United States are both um, in a more uncertain state than at any time I can remember. Uh, and Britain has just got to decide how it's going to operate in an entirely new international environment when, and I'm, I'm a Remainer, so where I'm coming from, but when I, I consider that our impact internationally will be diminished, both in Europe and not least because of that with the United States. And we need to think very hard about, so what are our assets? And how are we going now to promote our interests in this very different and much more difficult environment? So I, I do, I do favour um, a review. Uh, I don't think one should necessarily expect some earth-shattering um, uh, result, but I think it might be useful in terms of at least getting down what are our assets, you know, our, our universities, what are the strengths of our economy, where are, where are the strengths in our economy, what can we do? Uh, to promote uh, the sort of global arrangements that are going to favour us. In other words, what does this slogan Global Britain mean? You know, some of us think that we've been trying to be Global Britain since the first Queen Elizabeth. So, I mean, what, what, what is this actually all about? And I think we need now to sit down 
and be pretty hard-headed because uh, we've got to decide what, what is this role going to be in this new international environment, part of which, uh, you know, we have, we have opted to change ourselves. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm for it, but I think it's a difficult, uh, a difficult exercise for the reasons that you and Jack have touched on. Thank you. Now, let's come to the audience. And forgive me, audience, uh, you've been very patient. Um, but let's turn to Abby and ask what questions we've got. Abby, shall we take, take them in groups? How, how many questions have you got? Yes, we've got quite a few questions. So should I do them in batches of three? Very good. Um, so I'm going to come to Sam Dixon, Berta, and Robert Whittle. So Sam, do you want to start? Uh, hello, everyone. Um, so my first question is, how much independence does a cabinet minister have from the prime minister? For example, what can you say or do and how much will you be listened to by the PM? Very good. Uh, thank you, Sam. And let's go to Robert next. Hi, everyone. Um, so do the panelists have any views over what the UK's foreign policy position should be on Taiwan? Um, the policy has been very quiet, reserved towards Taiwan's sovereign status. Um, yet with China's increasingly assertive attitude in the Asia-Pacific region, how should uh, the UK respond if Taiwan's sovereignty be jeopardised by China? Thank you. And then can we hear from Berta? Uh, I'd like to ask of both panellists, um, did you expect the immense significance that would be attributed to the 9-11 attacks at the time that they happened? Did you and those around you feel that it was an issue that was going to have these far-reaching consequences? Very good. Three really good sharp questions. Jack, would you like to go first and then David? Okay. I mean, um, Sam, in many ways, I've, uh, I've sort of answered uh, the question about independence from the prime minister. You, the, the prime minister appoints you um, and um, you're part of a government, a collective government. Um, and as David said, I mean, one of the reasons that any prime minister is going to appoint somebody as foreign secretary is because they think they can trust both their judgment and also the way they operate. Um, now, sometimes it, it doesn't work out, um, but the, so that's why you're there. Um, and yes, of course, I mean, if, you, if you've got uh, a good relationship with your prime minister and you're seen to be on top of the job, um, of course you can, make, you can say all sorts of things to the prime minister and, and, uh, uh, and I did, but I, I mean, but I was also very loyal to him in public. I mean, I wanted my ministers waiting for me to be loyal to me. I was extremely pleased they came and told me in, in terms I was doing something which was stupid or wrong, um, but I expected loyalty. And so, so would a prime minister, because you can't operate a government uh, without that. Uh, but within that, uh, it's a fantastic privilege to, to, be, to say, do any of the four jobs I did at a senior level. Um, and, uh, but you need to accept, the, as it were, the rules that go with it. On, uh, on Taiwan, yeah, uh, well, I haven't got a, a finally formed view on this because we, our relationship with China is very important. I think that we should be firmer uh, over Taiwan uh, and, and I'm planning uh, to go as part of a, a delegation of the World United Services Institute uh, to Taiwan later this year for subject to COVID. Um, but I mean, we're not in a position uh, to offer security guarantees to Taiwan, and we, sh and we shouldn't imply that we are, are they? those are ones principally offered by the US through its specific forces. And on 9-11, yeah, I, I, I think I, 
I, I remember saying, and this is hardly an original, it was original to, to the, on the day when I saw the uh, second Twin Tower going down. Uh, uh, this changed everything. And then when I talked to Colin Powell uh, later that day, uh, and they'd already, as David said, worked out uh, where responsibility lay. Um, I knew that the landscape for foreign policy and international relations uh, was not going to be the same again. David, um, I don't think you need to answer Sam's first question because Jack's dealt with that, but would you like to talk about Taiwan and 9-11? Yeah, on Taiwan, I agree with Jack. I, mean, I, I We have to be very careful and not over-promising and being in a position where we would under-deliver. We can't guarantee Taiwan's independence, but I certainly think we should stand out to self-determination for Taiwan. And this has implications elsewhere. You know, what do we believe that the Chinese should be keeping to the agreement they had over Hong Kong or not? Uh, do we think that they should respect the wishes of the people of Taiwan or not? And this brings me back really to my, my values-based approach to foreign policy. I think one has to be realistic with the limits of what we can do, but I, I think we should be very clear that we do not think that the Chinese should be trying to incorporate Taiwan into China by force. Um, as for 9-11, yes, absolutely. I think it was obviously a turning point. One knew that on, on the day. This was the first attack on the mainland of the United States since Pearl Harbor, and Pearl Harbor happened in the middle of the Pacific. You know, this was in Washington and New York. And when I was waiting in New York after the attack, wondering what to do and where to go, one of the things people were saying was, well, they're going to attack the Pentagon, they're going to try and kill the president, they're going to do... I mean, this was an act of war. And I think it was particularly shocking for Americans because you know, actually, the mainland America wasn't touched in the Second World War. War happened somewhere else. These, this, this kind of destruction happened somewhere else. And to find this going on in your own capital, in your own financial center, uh, with apparently at the beginning fears that there might be 30 or 40 of these uh, sort of manned missiles going off in all directions was a tremendous shock. And one of the things that I saw as an official um, was that, I mean, you know, Tony Blair was one of the first heads of government to understand this. Uh, and one of the things he did in the, the weeks and months that followed, when if Britain was ever at the heart of Europe, it was during the, uh, that period, it was, it was the Blair straw period, you know, when actually people wanted to come and see British leaders from European capitals. And what he was insistent on doing was explaining to people that this was a massive psychological event and it was going to change the way the Americans viewed the world. Uh, and that was always, of course, the backdrop to Iraq. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, they decided to do Iraq, but without 9-11, I don't believe they would ever have done Iraq. Thank you. Now, before we come to the next round, on Taiwan, let me just mention that in three weeks' time, our policy and practice seminar on the 4th of February is going to be about China and Taiwan. And we've got three experts, uh, one from China and one from Taiwan uh, by origin, speaking about that. Abby, let's go to the next round. Great. So the next round, I'm going to ask Eugenie, Alistair and Honey. Um, so we should be allowed to speak now. So Eugenie, should we take you first? Could you unmute? Uh, yes, hello. I had a question. Um, do you have any advice for students, uh, I mean, first year, 
who already know they want to work in international relations? I think we'll field that one to David first, uh, but let's take the other two. Um, Honey, would you like to go next? Um, yeah. How do you think that we should go forward with involvement in foreign issues without inadvertently causing more damage later on, like has happened in the Middle East? Very good question. And lastly, Alistair? So given your experience in foreign affairs, do you think that the UN is still fit for purpose in the fast-paced environment of the 21st century? Very good. So David, uh, could you go first and then well, we'll come to yeah, Jack? I mean, on, on the question about uh, a student wanting to work in international relations, I mean, there's so many options these days. You know, 100 years ago when I went into the Foreign Office, um, you, there were various ministries that were involved in, in international relations, but the, the, the sort of the scope and scale now of what you can do, whether it's uh, through NGOs, whether it's um, philanthropy, whether it may be if you're an EU citizen, you can work for uh, the, the commission. I think you need to decide, you know, are you, go, are you talking here about wanting to go into international relations as a public servant, or are you going to go into it in, in a sort of more private capacity? But I think when, when you've answered that, then it may be that you don't know yourself. You need to explore this. I would suggest that you try and talk to people of your own, in your own age group, rather than, you know, old people like me, about what, what, what does it feel like these days to be a UN civil servant or to be working in the EU or to be going into the foreign office or to be going into a big charity? And then try and have some kind of stage. Go and, go and, go and spend some time there and see what it's like on the ground and see whether you really mean this, you like this, uh, and whether you want to do it. Because I think it's very difficult to imagine what it's like to be a desk officer, let's say in the foreign office, if you don't go and sit there for a, a few days or a week or so, and you actually see what a desk officer is doing. It can be described to you till you're blue in the face. But certainly I remember being astonished by what I was expected to do when I turned up. Um, so I, I think try and get hands-on experience and, and try to narrow it down if you can, uh, what kind of international relations you're talking about. And David, would you like to take the next two as well? The second question. Well, how do you, how do you decide that you're not going to do more damage? I mean, that, this, of course, you, you can't be sure you're not going to do more damage. Uh, there are issues where, unfortunately, intervention seems to make things worse, not better. Uh, and there are other issues where undoubtedly intervention has had an effect. One of the big debates in the international community over the last 20 years is what is the value and role of intervention? Um, I found myself involved twice in the Balkans in the 90s with intervention. One, one was in Bosnia where it was very, very difficult to believe that we were doing anything very effective despite having uh, peacekeepers on the ground. Um, eventually Dayton, uh, the Dayton deal was done uh, and we've got a sort of frozen conflict in Bosnia, which I would argue is better than the alternative, which is a hot conflict. But you could argue that by getting involved, we actually made things worse, not better. I've no doubt at all that the second conflict, Kosovo, we did much, we, we undoubtedly had a good effect. Uh, and Jack has talked about India, Pakistan. I mean, I think it's difficult to imagine now how fraught that felt in 2002. And I think perhaps the most chilling exchange I ever had with a foreign diplomat in the time I was in, in the diplomatic service was with my Indian counterpart, who was a wonderful man. And I went out to talk to him at one stage when India and Pakistan were literally eyeballing each other across the line of control. 
And we were, to be candid with you, worried that the Indians underestimated the extent to which the Pakistanis might be willing to use nuclear weapons. And I spoke to him and said, you know, there is this risk. I don't know whether you really have factored this into your planning. And he said, I can only tell you there are some people around here, David, who think if there's a nuclear exchange, we'll lose 20 million people and we'll wipe them out. And I think that the enormous effort, and it included Putin, who at that stage was seen as a proto-cooperative uh, force rather than the confrontational relationship we have now. And it included EU partners, it included the, the Americans, constant visiting, constant att attempts to make the two sides see sense really paid off. At one point, I, I suspect un, without precedent, Britain actually withdrew its diplomats, some of its diplomatic families from Delhi, saying this is so dangerous that we're not gonna have people on the ground. I mean, the Indians were furious about this, but that's how dangerous it became. So of course, you know, you could get it wrong and you can make things worse. But I think that the whole question of intervention has to be thought through very carefully. And no foreign minister, no prime minister is going to intervene because he does think he's going to make it worse, even if sadly on occasions that's, that's the truth. And do you want me to talk about the UN, Robert, or let Jack? Yes, please. So Alice On the question. UN, is it fit for purpose? No, um, clearly not. It can't do the things it would like to do. Does that mean we should disinvent it? Certainly not. Um, it does a whole lot of things through its agencies and through the fora it provides that need to be done. What it can't do is impose world government. But if we didn't have UN peacekeeping, if we didn't have UN aid, if we didn't have all the things that the UN is trying to do around the world, the world would be a much more dangerous and fraught place. Um, it's, I think, unreformable because the Security Council uh, permanent members are not going to reform it because it's <coughs> not their interest to do so. And so you have to work with what you've got but I do think it's an enormously important focus for international discussion and debate. And I think despite all the drawbacks and all the failings, it does an enormous amount of very important good work. Jack, what would you like to add? Yeah, I was well, just picking up David's last point. Um, uh, it's, I mean, the other the critical thing about the UN is it's, it's at the apex of the international rule of law. And, um, People can be cynical uh, about a rules-based system, but it is a rules-based system. Um, and uh, the reason it, it, it's not far from perfect, as David said, uh, but you just need to think about historically what, what kind of um, environment there was when there weren't rules. Um, I mean, not just from the UN, but, 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 but you know, when there was anarchy. Um, or, for example, you know, that which Hitler did, and I mean, on obviously much more limited. Uh, I don't not putting in the same bracket, but some of the things that, that Donald Trump has, has tried to do is to ignore international uh, rules-based system, um, with, in, in my judgment, disastrous consequences for the United States, and actually weakened its authority, not, not strengthened it. So, uh, I mean, there was a slim chance you might be able to get some reform of, of the Security Council. Um, but you won't get a reform of the position of the five permanent members because it's likely not in their interest to do so. In a, in a funny kind of way, it sort of works as well when we are surrogates for other interests uh, as well. And that's been particularly important since uh, Communist China uh, came in. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks.
Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, and uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Um, and that runs into um, the second question, uh, Robert, which was, um, how do we go forward in issues without causing damage, with the implication that what we're going to do is to cause damage, and maybe uh, we should just walk off the park. And one or two countries which have had uh, an equally active history to ours in previous centuries have, to some extent, done that. Uh, and uh, I don't, I mean, I don't, I think it's irresponsible to do it. Uh, I think it, it would gravely diminish Britain's sense of itself. And this is not about pretending that we are in the relative world position that we were in before the First World War, because we're not. Um, but we have a really important, in my view, contribution to make internationally. We've also responsibilities. Look at the Middle East. Um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot of the problems, by no means all of them, uh, were created in the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, and the fact that we and the French were pretty perfidious about uh, what we, we said we wanted to do and what we actually uh, did. Um, we've got responsibilities there. We, we, we haven't got a magic wand. We haven't got, uh, we, we're not even in the position of the US, but we can, if we're careful, careful, try and tilt policy uh, by the uh, uh, United States, by other players, and also we were able to do this with uh, the European Union to a, to a better end. And just on that point, um, we left the EU, Madam Great regret to, to me, and I know it is uh, to David. One of the things that's really important is that the government shouldn't throw that out, that baby out with the bathwater of, of security uh, uh, cooperation uh, with uh, key countries in, in Europe, and particularly uh, with France and Germany, um, because, um, I mean, for a variety of reasons, uh, we, 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 need to, we, we need to work with our closest ally, which is the United States, but we also need to work very, as closely as we can uh, with the other large um, uh, defense provider, France, and the biggest economy, which is Germany, as well as obviously the other ones on a bilateral basis. Now, we've got time for certainly one more round. Um, Abby, are there lots of questions? Because in which case we might try and do two quick rounds. Uh, yeah, I've got a few, so we could definitely try and do two rounds. Okay, so quick questions, everyone, please, and, and quick answers from my panel. So the first yes. three, I'm going to go to Piers, Stephen, and Andre. Um, so Piers, you should be able to speak. Piers, could you unmute? Quick question. Can you, hi, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, yeah, so I was just wondering, you, um, Mr. Straw, you mentioned Arabic speakers and, and that there was a, an issue where there was a lack of them um, on one occasion. So do either of you have any interesting stories about or anecdotes about times when there have been language barriers or, or communication issues in your work? Thank you. And Stephen next. We're not hearing Stephen. I'll ask the question on his behalf. So he okay. asked, were you satisfied with the outcome of Saddam Hussein's removal? Uh, and thirdly, Andre. Um, how should Britain respond to China's um, recent actions in Hong Kong and the treatment of Uyghurs? Very good. Uh, Jack, your turn to go first. Um, so Piers, on, on Arabic speakers, um, 
the, I mean, the, the Foreign Office um, has always put a, a pretty high value on, on having really good linguists uh, in posts. Um, I mean, we could do more um, uh, and so on. But, but on the, I mean, yeah, the only story that comes to mind is actually when, um, I mean, I, uh, my French is passable, but not brilliant. And I used to have French lessons. I, I went to see Bouteflika, who was the president of uh, Algeria. And he said, and he spoke beautiful, beautiful French, and I was listening to him in French, I'm obviously not using the interpreter uh, uh, to um, translate my, I'm um, speaking in English in, in reply. But I, um, I thought I heard him say in French that, that um, he, he wanted Algeria to join the British Commonwealth, as he put it. And I thought to myself, he can't be saying this. So I asked the interpreter this, thinking something had gone wrong with my brain. Uh, and anyway, he had indeed asked uh, exactly that. He hated the French. Um, but so that, that was, that's the story that comes to that. I, I'm afraid, Stephen, I didn't get what the question was. I think I'm going to overrule it, I'm afraid. It was about Iraq, but we've talked about Iraq an awful lot, and we're running out of time. So um, please forgive me, Stephen, about that. Let's go to Andre, who asked a question about a new topic, Hong Kong. Um, because uh, and Hong Kong, um, again, and for, for reasons David and I have talked about, very difficult to handle. Um, I, we need to look at, we can say we disagree with this, which is what the British government has done. Um, what I hope they're doing is also looking at what very limited levers they have for dealing with uh, the Chinese, uh, absent, obviously, military action is not remotely uh, on, on the agenda. Uh, and, and, and uh, absent uh, trade sanctions as well. And they need to start building up the case as well, uh, because maybe the treaties are, are quoted, but no one's saying, this is what this treaty says, and this is why the Chinese uh, are, not, are not following. On the Uyghurs, I mean, I think we have to just uh, raise the, uh, the temperature on the just outrageous treatment of the Uyghurs. And, and, uh, their, their weasel words about what they're doing there. David. I, like Jack, think that on, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, we have to be very clear that we uh, don't uh, agree with what is happening, that we condemn it, but I think you have to work internationally. You need, your, you need partners, you need allies. You, you can't possibly uh, affect the argument there on, by ourselves. <coughs> we'll be able to do so in conjunction with the EU and the incoming Biden administration. <laughs> Biden administration is obviously going to put far more emphasis on human rights than, than Trump. Uh, and so the Chinese are going to have to recalibrate what they do, I think, in terms of uh, human rights in the next four years, because it's really going to matter again in terms of their, their wider relations. I think there are things you can, you can look at in terms of the bilateral relationship on whether you uh, sanction people's bank accounts and make it impossible for them to come to London if they obviously behaved uh, egregiously, badly in Hong Kong. And that's the kind of policy we've adopted towards people around Putin. And I think it may be appropriate in Hong Kong. But I think the basic message, as, as with Taiwan, is that it's got to, the Chinese have got to feel the pressure from the whole of the international community. It's not gonna, they're not going to uh, uh, act because of us. They'll just try and pick us off one by one. And David, uh, any nice stories about language difficulty? Uh, only against myself. I mean, as, as Jack says, you know, when you're uh, abroad, you, you're expected to, to try and make a fist of, of the language. And I, I know I, I just look back in horror at the attempts 
early on in my career to be when, when there was no interpreter to be the interpreter for the ambassador at various meetings. I mean, goodness knows how we didn't start a world war, really. <laughs> Very good. Let's come now to the, this will be the last round. Um, Abby, what are our last set of questions? Great. So we've got Sean, Kevin and Ewan. Very good. So Sean, do you want to go first? Sean, could you unmute and ask your question? No, we are not hearing. So Abby, could you ask Sean's question? Yeah, he says, I would be fascinated to hear the relationship between the government and the civil service. Does the Secretary of State really have the ability to actively influence policy? Very good. And Kevin next. Hi, um, what did you miss from your days as Home and Secretary when you became leader of the House? Very good. And then the third question is from... Yeah, Ewan, who's asked me to read it out. Uh, Very good. How do you see further foreign security and development cooperation changing since Brexit? Sorry, say it again. How do we see uh, foreign and security policy changing since Brexit? Right. Jack, would you like to go first on this? Yeah, so relation with government and civil service. Um, ministers decide, uh, officials can recommend. Uh, I, I've never, clear an interest, I've been, uh, my wife um, was a senior civil servant for very many years. Uh, and uh, if, if you like, I understand civil service. and. Um, she understands ministers, um, or the, anyway, this one. Um, but I've never subscribed to this view that civil service is a conspiracy against ministers. It's total nonsense. Uh, and it's a, an excuse by weak ministers or weak governments for their own failures. Um, of course, you'll get frustrated sometimes. I, I wasn't actually in the, in the Foreign Office on the whole. I was in the Home Office by some bit of the Home Office, you know, failing, but, but it's, these were human organizations and there was no point uh, doing really difficult things. And, and you need to kind of lead by understanding uh, as well as example, rather than going around telling them they're all terrible and then wondering why they're not performing. So I, I mean, I have profound disagreements about the way part of uh, the, uh, the Johnson government has behaved towards the civil service uh, and not to fire uh, Pretty Patel for bullying is just outrageous and ought not to be forgotten, in my opinion. Um, so um, Kevin asked about, what did I miss as Home Secretary? Well, um, leader of the House is, is a terrific job. It, it's a, a job confined with leading. You're, you're, in, you're in charge of the legislative programme uh, and you're in, uh, you spend a lot of your time in the House of Commons, which happily uh, I loved. I mean, you, you, you've just got a small secretariat behind you. You haven't got a great government department, so I, I guess I, I missed that. On the other hand, when I I, I was also um, at one level really pleased to have, not to have the burden, but um, but that's but I, I by the time I went to the uh, house, I'd done really heavy ministerial jobs for nine years flat out. And on cooperation uh, post Brexit, well, David's um, made this point. International cooperation becomes more, more difficult post-Brexit because we were in the room and actually leading on those things, originally with 15 members and when, we, when I was first, as it were, became joined in, in, uh, 
well, in 1997, got involved in the EU, um, and then uh, at, rose to 27th. Um, and because we're a large country with a big diplomatic service, we were very influential. We could have been more influential, uh, but certainly under Tony Blair, um, and we, we, we were, we, and we could have built on that. So that's an argument against leaving the European Union. We've left what uh, the Foreign and Development Office has to do and what uh, the Prime Minister has to do along with our, our defence forces to work out how we can cooperate on a bilateral and multi-EU country basis, notwithstanding the fact that we are now outside uh, the EU. We won't be able to replicate it completely. We can, in my view, make a lot more of NATO, which David knows uh, a lot more about, and other inst international institutions to which we are our members. David, just on the first question, to put a little twist on it, and uh, putting to you the question we put much earlier to Jack, how much scope do you think there is for a senior official to initiate or to influence policy working with a minister? I think there's quite a lot of scope. Um, and perhaps paradoxically, the stronger the minister, the greater the scope. Yeah, absolutely. What, what civil servants, what diplomats like is to have a really strong minister. The idea that the civil servants want some weak minister they can push around is, in my experience, completely misconceived. What the department wants is a strong minister who is widely respected, influential in the government, has good relations with the prime minister, and who can drive the department's agenda forward and is clear about what he wants that agenda to be. And within that scope, as long as you have a minister who is open and doesn't feel challenged when uh, officials bring up problems, suggest alternatives, you can be, you can have a real impact on the policy and it can be seen as something that I think is a very sort of cooperative effort. And it's not always like that. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to sound completely Pollyannaish about this, but it is perfectly possible for that. And as I say at the beginning, it is much more likely to be the case if you have a strong minister because they don't see this as somehow undermining them. They see it as an asset have people around them who can provide good ideas and challenge rather than just uh, appear to be acquiescing in whatever they've said. Now, time sadly to draw this all to a close. Before I thank tonight's speakers, and I'll ask them to stay on the line uh, for a chat afterwards, let me just give a trailer for next week's seminar in this series. It's the, the same time, Thursday at 6pm, and the topic is going to be public attitudes to the state post-COVID, the speakers are my UCL colleagues, Tim Hicks and Jack Blumenauer, joined by Stuart Wood, who is Lord Wood, uh, sits on the Labour benches in the Lords, and Alba Ray from the New Statesman. Uh, but in closing, let me thank both Jack and David for their insights into the role of the Foreign Secretary. It's been a fascinating discussion in which I, as a non-expert in foreign policy, have learned lots, and I'm sure the audience have too, if this were a live event, at this point, there would be a roar of thunderous applause. And I must talk to Abby about getting some BBC sound effects. Um, but thank you both very, very much. Good night and thank you.